All right, we're going to begin tonight this series. We're going to be looking uh, at the book of Acts and focusing mainly on uh, witnessing or sharing your faith or evangelism and reasons why we want to do it, uh, how to do it, um, problems that come up when we start to do it, um, how to pray for it as we go along. Uh, All these things are dealt with in great detail in the book of Acts, and you can see that even from what we've read tonight. Uh, If you think about it, every person who becomes a Christian uh, becomes a Christian because someone else shared the gospel message with them. Isn't that right? I mean, it's actually impossible to become a Christian without somebody sharing the gospel message with you. Well, someone might say, well, hold on, I read the Bible on my own, and that's how I became a Christian. Yeah, but who wrote the Bible down? People. Who translated the Bible? Lots of people. Uh, Who printed it? Lots of people. So there were people involved in the transmission of the gospel from God to you, which is how you became a Christian. In fact, you can probably think of the names of the people who were bold enough to preach to you or to quietly share with you in personal conversation, or maybe just the prayers that people prayed for you that you sometimes knew about or overheard long before you ever cared about it. And through that instrumentality, through that that means, God brought you from a place of darkness where you did not understand God and did not want God to a place of light where you finally understood and began to want to join him and follow him in the way of Jesus Christ. Well, this pattern is not just a humanly invented pattern. This pattern we see in the verses that we read this morning is a God-ordained divine pattern for how the church grows. Um, God does not design to save people without the sharing of the gospel by other people. And I think that's a very important point to remember, especially as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we are here at Greater Hope Church who wants, hopefully, in our next six years to be even better than we were in our first six years at sharing the gospel with people in our community, in our families, and in our lives. Anybody in here want to sign up for that? Being better than we were in the first six years than uh, in the next six years. And to see God do mighty things among us here in our community. Uh, Our first six years of the church have been rather eventful. Uh, Right in the middle of the first six years was the dreaded COVID virus. And it definitely made an impact on the church. And kind of, you can kind of almost think about Greater Hope pre COVID, Greater Hope post COVID, and they're kind of very different things, right? Uh, Just simply because of all the moving and the various other things that happened during that period of time. We lost people and we gained people. Um, I am excited to kind of re-rally us around this basic idea. We are on a mission. Uh, We're not just here simply to feed ourselves or build ourselves up, although that's very important that you feed yourself. We are here to go and share the great riches that God has given to us with people around us. And so we're going to look at this idea. The church is an organization founded by God with an identity assigned by God. The church is an organization founded by God through his son Jesus with an identity that was assigned by God. It was Christ himself, we see here, who gave the church its first missionary mandate. 
which has forever since, for 2,000 years, marked the church as a missionary church, a church that's supposed to be going to share and going to spread and going to preach uh, right in the local area and beyond. And so if you look at your bulletin, we're going to just tonight lay some groundwork uh, and hopefully this laying of the groundwork will open up some avenues throughout this series for us to think about some of the more practical aspects of what it means to share our faith and what are some of the ways to overcome the challenges with it. But tonight, let's do some groundwork. First of all, we're going to look at the foundations of the mission that we have. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 3. Uh, then secondly, we're going to look at the power for the mission that, that Jesus promised and gave. And then lastly, in verses 6 to 11, we're going to look at the method of the mission that Jesus has ordained. All right, some of this is going to be a review for you, but it's, I think, going to be a good review for all of us to think about these basic ideas. So first of all, there's the foundations of our mission. Uh, Luke begins his book by referring to another book. Well, by the way, you might not know this, but Luke wrote Acts. Can you guess which other book Luke wrote? Not Matthew. That's a good, good guess. You're, you're getting warmer. What other book did Luke write? Luke, right? Luke, he wrote. And so when he says in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's referring back to the gospel of Luke. This is now the second book in a two-book series that Luke set out to write about Christianity. Uh, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, you can see that he mentions the name Theophilus in that book as well. He tells Theophilus that he's writing to him in order to show him the certainty of all the things that the apostles saw with their own eyes about Jesus Christ. These were things that Luke, who was a Gentile doctor or physician, these were things he researched, studied, interviewed people, and after compiling all that, he wrote it down and sent it to a guy named Theophilus whom he calls in Luke 1, most excellent Theophilus, which probably indicates that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman official of some kind because most excellent is like a his royal highness type thing or the honorable, uh, you know, you, may, you don't really say that just to your buddies, right? The honorable Bob, you know, we say Captain Bob, but not things like the honorable or his royal highness. Uh, most excellent Theophilus meant that, that, that he was he's writing to a guy who has an official position in the state, in, in the government, who had either already become a Christian or whom he's been trying to get to become a Christian. And so he writes this book about Jesus from his birth all the way to his ascension into heaven. And now in Acts 1, he's writing the second volume, which covers what happens after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, and it covers about 30 years of church history. Okay, 30 years of church history. Uh, from the year 30, when Jesus went up, to the year around about 60, when Paul was on house arrest in Rome. And oh boy, are those ever some 30 years. Uh, lots happened in those 30 years. The church goes from being about 120 people hiding in an upper room in Jerusalem to being an empire-wide network of churches that have been planted in almost every major city with thousands of followers, not just from a Jewish background, but also from a Gentile background. Lots of things happen in the first 30 years of the church. 
which I think gives us the most unique opportunity. That's why I think Acts is in the Bible. It gives us a unique opportunity to see the church at its most basic foundational level, the constitution level. You know, the United States of America, for example, is defined so much by its founding period and the documents that were written during that period in the late 1700s. You know, things have changed, of course, and even things in those documents have changed, but the, the essential things haven't changed in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. And so we go back to those to see what America's all about. Well, how do, where do we go to find what the Church of Jesus Christ is about, the Acts of the Apostles? Where Luke, writing to Theophilus, tells him what the first 30 years of church history entailed. Now look at what he says. In the first book, I dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach. Notice that word began. Uh, I was writing before about what he began to do. Well, somebody who's reading Luke might say, well, wait a minute, Luke. You pretty much summed up the story of Jesus, right? You, You told us how he died, how he was buried, how he was raised, and how he ascended into heaven and a cloud hid him out of our sight. I would call that not what Jesus began to do, but what Jesus did, period. So why does he say, I told you first what he began to do, and now I'm going to tell you the history of the church? What does that say? Well, this very simple thing. What God has called the church to do is actually what is accomplished by the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in heaven. What the church does on earth, what we're called to do on earth, is the outworking of what Jesus Christ continues to do from his now exalted position in heaven. When he was on earth, it was just what he began to do. Jesus is not done working in the world. Jesus is not done working in the world. He wasn't done in A.D. 30, and he actually wasn't done in A.D. 60 when Acts chapter 28 concludes. He is still working today, 2,000 years later. Jesus, as king and head over all things, delivers his salvation to his people in the form of the gospel message, which he entrusted to his apostles who carried it to that that next generation along with the gift of the Holy Spirit so that they could then bring it to the next generation and the next generation and so forth, all down the line, 2,000 years so far of the work of what Christ continued to do and to teach. And I find that very encouraging. This is the constitution of the church. Uh, We ought to put a sign on the door, Christ at work. And that wouldn't just be a cheesy thing to say. That would be real. I mean, we really mean that. Christ at work. Uh, this is not just about preachers working or about members working or about anybody this is, or elders or deacons. This is about Christ who continues to exercise his reign in the world, really in the world, living, working in people's lives. And he does it largely through the activities that he's given to the church to carry out. Notice how it says it. Uh, Until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, he presented himself to them alive after his suffering by many proofs. He He showed his disciples that he was truly alive. Many proofs. 
And he appeared to them, giving those proofs during the 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. There were 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And that was the founding period of the church where Jesus was making sure those first apostles, those first church leaders had the message down pat. They understood it. They had seen it. They had touched it. They had the proof of it. And they were to go in the world with that verified message so that another group of people could believe and then become the carriers of the message. The gospel is always about receiving it and carrying it, uh, receiving it, believing it, and passing it on. Uh, the church is not just a place where we receive. It's also a place where we share and give one to another and to those who are yet outside. That's what we're seeing here in these first verses. Jesus continues to work in his church through his word and through his Holy Spirit. We read it earlier from the Shorter Catechism. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? By revealing to people the will of God for their salvation by his word and spirit. And that's what these first verses of Acts are saying. Jesus intended to do and what he still does today in his church. It tells us at the end of verse 3 that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And so the church, in a really, really very real way, is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ, where he reigns and where he's getting his work done in his way on his timetable. One writer says that the melody of Acts, the, the main point of the whole book of Acts, is the fulfillment of God's plan to gather in his people from the farthest reaches of the earth. It's the gathering in of God's people according to his plan from the farthest reaches of the earth by the efforts of those who've already been reached. The apostles were the first to be reached. Jesus spent time with them, taught them, assured them that he really was raised, that the gospel really is true, and then they became the carriers. This is the most basic, essential foundation, not only of the church's life, but of the whole issue of evangelism. Sharing our faith in Jesus with people is not just merely a matter of us being really persuasive, good salesmen and good saleswomen, and it's also not a matter of us just telling everybody how right we are. Really, it's about Jesus gathering his people from the furthest corners of the earth through us. Does that inspire anybody so far tonight? I hope it does. I hope it does. It's so easy for the church to cease to be the church because it forgets what its constitution and charter was from the beginning. We lose sight of verses 1 to 3, and the church can stop being churchy. And by the way, I think it's bad for the church not to be churchy. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me to try to make churches that aren't churchy. Well, why? It's a church, right? And there are certain things that mark a church, and that's okay. I and mean, actually, that's Jesus-given. Uh, and those things that mark a church are the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Christ, an unwavering commitment to the Bible, and a ceaseless sharing of that Bible one with another. 
add to that prayer and, and, and worship and praise. And you've got, boom, you've got basically the, the ingredients. And yet all the time, churches are being pressured to cave in to both outward and inward influences that take away the churchiness of the church. The salt, the saltiness of the salt shaker that we are. Remember what Jesus said about the salt? If the salt loses its saltiness, what? Good for nothing. You might as well throw it out, right? If, if salt is no longer salt, what's the point of salt? If the church is not distinctively church, what's the point? Uh, if the church is just like the Kiwanis Club, what's really the point? Uh, if the church is just like a little book club, what's the point? Uh, if the church is just a school, what's the point? The church must be church. And Acts 1 through 3 shows you how. It's by putting Jesus, recognizing Jesus as being the only king and head, the only one that everyone has to obey, no questions. And the receiving and sharing of that message in the power of the Holy Spirit. The outward pressure is this, and maybe you've heard this. Maybe this is what keeps you from sharing your faith. The outward pressure is, well, when you share your faith, what you're saying is your, your way is the only right way, and you're necessarily implying my way is wrong, and I'm offended by that. There's an outward pressure to that. And so the church can, in that outward pressure, begin to kind of try to morph itself into a, well, you're kind of right. And there are many different ways to think about these things and to get to God. And let's just all get together and sing some happy songs and do some community service. And maybe make a political stand here and there. Don't you know there are many churches that that, that becomes their identity? And it's because of outward pressure. And, well, there are not just many churches. There are many individual Christians. That becomes their basic life mission. Rather than the mission of taking the life-giving gospel message to somebody else in prayer, prayerfully hoping that God will change their hearts. Well, there's also inward pressure. Let me ask you, what do you think the inward pressures are within the church that might cause the church to forget its constitution? Any thoughts? Outside says, I'm offended because you're saying I'm wrong and you're right and how dare you. What is the inside pressure? Yeah, we want it to look a certain way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, how does it look? Does it suit my tastes? Uh, oh boy, is that ever a big deal within the church, right? Entertain me. Uh, Alex? Yeah, that's right. It, it can become almost a fortress. The church can become this fortress where inside the fortress we talk all this big thing about Jesus conquering the world, but we don't want to ever go outside the fortress to talk to people who don't know Jesus. That's bad. There's all kinds of inward pressures. Uh, the desire for you know, Christians to be simply entertained and comforted, or the, the desire simply to throw up the walls and protect ourselves from outside influences. Which, you know, granted, we should protect ourselves from outside influences. But the way to do that is not to ignore the hurting world. 
the way to do that is to get, as you go out into the hurting world, to get yourself deeply grounded in the one who heals the hurting world. And by being deeply grounded, you can go out and be in it, but not of it. That's the way Jesus sends us. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that to all of these problems, the book of Acts is the greatest tonic that he knows of in the realm of the spirit. That's the way he put it. It's the greatest tonic. A tonic was a, a drink that people used to drink to feel better. It was kind of a medicinal drink that would help you feel better. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Jones says, Acts is that way. It's a tonic. It helps the church rediscover who she really is so that the outward, the outward pressures or the inward pressures don't distract her from the main point. And the fact is, you know, if we are not sharing the gospel with people outside, uh, if we're not uh, preaching the true message of the gospel, even while we're inside, uh, we've lost our way and need to come back to the life-giving tonic of the book of Acts and the simple idea that Jesus Christ chose 12 men, entrusted them with a message to take to the world so that they could spread it to the next people who could spread it to the next people who could spread it to the next people, church. All right, that's the first thing. Secondly, we see the power for the mission in verses 4 to 5. And this is probably the most important part of the first few chapters of Acts. Jesus says, while they were staying with, uh, while staying with them or while eating with them, and several times in the 40 days between the resurrection and ascension, uh, Jesus met with his disciples to eat with them. Almost always it was on a Sunday uh, or the Lord's Day as it became to be known, the Christian Sabbath day. Jesus would meet them Sunday by Sunday. He would have meals with them. He would teach them more and prepare them for their mission. It says here in verse 4 that while he stayed with them, he ordered them. What is an order? Hey, guys, I think it would be really cool if. Is that an order? Hey, hey, you know, I was thinking, I don't know what you think about this, but I was thinking maybe stay in Jerusalem for a little while. Is that the way Jesus approached it? He ordered them. Like, this is what must be done or else you're toast. Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. Now, I always have found this uh, very interesting, even, even as a kid. It's like Jesus says, go, and then the next thing he says is, but wait. Does that seem a little confusing to you? Go into all the world, boys. But wait, stay in, the, in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father is given, which he said, you heard from me. John the Baptist baptized with water. That was a wonderful thing. And Christian churches today continue to baptize with water after the command of Christ. But there's a greater baptism. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's what they needed to wait for. They could not do the mission that God had given them to do to share the faith and to spread it to more people and to gather the saints without receiving an abundant measure of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Ezekiel the prophet was one time taken out to a valley where he was given a vision. And that valley was filled with dry and dead bones. Do you remember that story? I love this story because I don't know if y'all know this, but this whole area of South 
Mulberry and South is called Bone Valley. Did y'all know that? Uh, that's, that's the real, real deal. This, is, this area is called Bone Valley. There's a lot of reasons for that, which we won't get into tonight, but it's what it's called. This story has always inspired me because here is Ezekiel looking out over a Bone Valley. And what does God tell Ezekiel to do? Two things. Do you remember what the first thing is that he tells him to do? What do you see? Yep. And he said, oh, I see dead, dead death. You know, I see a bunch of bones. No, nothing's alive out here. Then he says what? Preach. Prophesy. Speak. Speak my word over the bones. Okay. Now, now the Lord had told Ezekiel to do some pretty strange things. This was actually not the strangest thing that God told Ezekiel to do. If you've ever read Ezekiel, you, I mean, it makes for some interesting reading. Uh, you know, at one point he has him cook bread over human dung. That's weird. Well, this was kind of up there with it. Ezekiel, I've got a congregation that I want you to speak to. All right, Lord, I'm excited. I, I love preaching. It's a congregation of bones. All right, Ezekiel goes for it. He just starts giving it to him, <laughs> preaching the word, prophesying, speaking what God has to say, the message of hope to death. And what begins to happen? Very dramatic. The bones start shaking and they start coming together. And by the time Ezekiel's done preaching, the bones are together in the shape of bodies, but there's no life. They're just bones, they're skeletons. What's the next thing that God told Ezekiel to do? Now I want you to pray. Speak to the wind, he says, which could also be translated, speak to the spirit. In Hebrew, the word breath, spirit, wind are all the same word. Uh, prophesy to the spirit. Speak to the spirit and my spirit will come. So Ezekiel began to call on the Spirit. He stopped preaching to the bones. He started preaching to God, basically. And the Spirit came rushing in. And meat began to come onto the bones. And life began to, to come into the, the now fully formed bodies. And then they stood up. And it says at the end, the valley of bones became a mighty army in the Lord. Because Ezekiel preached the word. And prayed down the spirit. Well, this is what's in the background, I think, of what Jesus says to the apostles in, in verses 4 to 5. Ezekiel's vision was a prophecy of the way God was going to build the New Testament church. He was going to build it through a mission of preaching and sharing the gospel but also a mission of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was unlike any outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had ever been before. A, 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 a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Baptism being a total inundation with the Spirit. A pouring out from heaven the overwhelming gallons and buckets of the Holy Spirit down onto that new church. And of course, we'll see that in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit comes in and everybody in the church is equipped to speak the gospel 
and to speak it in all kinds of languages so that all the world could be gathered in to this new church. What Jesus says to his disciples is the same thing that Ezekiel saw, and it's the same thing that's true today. When, you go, when we go out as a church to share our faith, it's not just important that we understand that's our mission, that's our constitution, uh, that's where, how we were started, and we have to be obedient to the Great Commission, although all that's true. We also have to know that we are empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit who's been given to the church. We are not alone. We're not going in the power of our own strength. When someone prayerfully shares the gospel with another person, God is at work in an unseen way, in the depths of that person's heart in a way you can't be. As persuasive as you might be as a person. And there are some persuasive people out there. There's some really good salespeople out there. As no matter how persuasive you are, you cannot be persuasive to the human heart when it doesn't want to listen. I thought I'd at least get an amen on that one. Isn't the human heart a stubborn thing? Wow. I know and we know what the Bible means when it says you're like a mule that won't even come with a bit in your mouth. That's what the Bible says about us. Don't make me have to hit you over the head, God says. Don't be like a mule. Just listen. And yet that's our problem. We don't listen. And so the Holy Spirit is needed to take those dry bones that, that are us spiritually, not only to bring us back together and put everything in the right place, but to give us some kind of desire in life to stand up and present ourselves at attention for God. And that's what evangelism is about. That's what the mission of the church is about. Not just that we are called to go be obedient by sharing our faith, but that the Holy Spirit is sweeping through this world. And he wants to use us. He's doing mighty things. He's changing hearts. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me. They say, you know, there, there's a few ways if you really want to work up a guilt trip in people in church. Either talk about prayer or evangelism or the keeping of the Sabbath day. Those are three of the easiest ways to get people guilty. And actually, I agree. I mean, I get guilty when I hear about all three of those. Well, there's a place for that because, yeah, none of us measure up to God's standard, but we should all always be remembering where the standard is and striving for it. And so there's going to be a measure of guilt, and I don't measure up. But this is telling us it's not just a matter of if you feel guilty enough, you'll share your faith. So don't you feel guilty? I want to make you feel guilty so that you'll share the gospel with somebody, right? What kind of gospel sharer? is the one motivated by guilt, primarily. How's that going to go, you know? Well, the Lord can use it. And I would argue that God has used many a guilty preacher and gospel sharer in history to save people. But that ain't, that ain't the design. The design is that we would have the Holy Spirit and that we would stand up on our own, of our own accord as a mighty army to say, Lord, here I am, send me. Who do you want me to share with? Who do you want me to pray for? Who do you want me to invite to church? I don't know the answers to that, their questions, but who do you want me to take to someone who does know the answers to their questions? Because there's somebody in the church that does, even if I don't. So this is teamwork, right? Teamwork evangelism is what I believe in. 
And what I believe that Jesus is establishing in his church, it's not one person doing it all. It's not just the good speakers that do it. It's everybody that has a role to play, some role to play in the sharing of the gospel. Well, you can't do that no matter what your role is. You can't do that without the Spirit giving you the desire, the willingness, the, 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 the motivation that can only come from him. After all, here's what Jesus said, John 3. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. How do you become a Christian? Spirit. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a spiritual person. That is someone who actually has spiritual life given you from on high by God. You've been born again. Flesh cannot produce spirit. And so there's no sense in us uh, going out to share our faith just because we're guilty, uh, out of our own, you know, steam, trying to make spiritual people out of fleshly people. And that would have been like Ezekiel just going over there and just shaking the bones. Come alive so that I don't feel guilty. I was told I needed to do this. God told me to speak to you, and you're not listening. <laughs> Listen. Right? No, there was something way different that God had in mind. It was the rushing wind of the Spirit that was going to take Ezekiel's message much further than Ezekiel could ever carry it. And if you're a Christian tonight, that's your story. Somebody, probably somebody's, had the boldness enough to share with you. They stood up in front of a church and they preached. They came and, and sat down and read the Bible with you. They maybe even called you out about something that you were doing that was wrong. And you, at that time, you hated them for it. But they did it. Uh, maybe it was your mama praying for you. Some, you could list them out. What happened there? It wasn't just them out of their own flesh and out of their own guilt feelings doing their duty. It was God the Holy Spirit opening up your heart where it was closed before, bringing the bones back together spiritually and putting flesh on those bones and breath into those bodies of your soul so that you could believe and repent as the gospel calls you to do. That's what it was. And that's what it's going to be when you go share with that next person. Or when I share with that next person. That's why Jesus says, go, but first stay. You've got to wait for the promise of the Father. The way we apply that today, well, we're after Pentecost. So we're not waiting around for Pentecost to happen. Pentecost has already happened. Um, I, I do think it's a misreading of the book of Acts to believe that every Christian should expect to get saved and then sometime after, if they pray enough, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it's a misreading of the book of Acts. I think when you believe, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit because we live after Pentecost. The disciples had to wait for it because it hadn't yet happened. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a one-time event, just like the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. You don't repeat it over and over again. So we don't wait in the same way they did, but we do wait in this sense. You've got to pray, 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 pray every day. I 
I've made the mistake of trying to share the faith with people without praying for them before. And I learned later it was a mistake. Either because God actually did still use it and they came to faith, but I somehow thought I had done it. Because I hadn't prayed, I, I kind of got it in my head. Wow, man, I'm a pretty good evangelist. You know? It's a bad idea because I didn't need that in my heart. Or the Lord graciously caused me to fall flat on my face and be laughed out of the room. And I realized, wait a minute, I didn't ever even prayed about this meeting before I had it. You got to wait on the, on the promise of the Father, you got to wait on the Holy Spirit. And although every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit, not every Christian is always walking in the fullness of the Spirit. And it is important that by prayer you are learning how to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That is going into every situation with His backing, knowing that He's backing you, knowing that He's filling you, and depending on Him to do what you can't do. Imagine Ezekiel standing out over the valley of dry bones and beginning to preach. And that, that, you should get that picture in your mind every time you go to pray for the person that you love that doesn't know Jesus. That's what you're going to do. To preach to a skeleton that's disconnected. All right, that's the second thing. The power for the mission. The third thing is the method of the mission. And this is verses 6 through 11. There's a certain method that God wants us to use in our work as a church, in evangelism. Look at what the disciples asked in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, let's grade the apostles here. Uh, what grade would you give their question? A, B, C, D, or F? And why? <laughs> It's easy for us to do this, but how, what would you say? An F, probably. John Stott says they have everything about it is wrong. In fact, John Calvin, years before, said, this is his quote about it, there are as many errors in the questions as there are words. That was John, that was John Calvin in the 1500s. And John Stott put, makes it a little, little clearer when he says, first of all, they're assuming this is some kind of political thing. Because they say, restore the kingdom. So we want to get the kingdom back to the way it was, like with David. Like, we want a political movement here. That was wrong. Uh, they had a nationalistic view. I want you to restore Israel. We don't care about the nations, just Israel. And it was an immediate view. Will you now, at this time, restore it? And John Stott says, actually, the mission of the church is the opposite of all three of those. The mission of the church is primarily spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean that the mission of the church doesn't touch political or physical things. It does, because, of course, when people are transformed by the gospel, it can impact every part of society, and it should impact every part of society. But the, the mission of the church is not primarily political. We're not here to start a political movement or to even to fund or back a particular political movement, one over the other. Uh, we're here on a spiritual mission. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is building a kingdom. And that's what we're doing. It's international. Jesus said to his disciples, You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the end of the earth. And if you look at a map, this is concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria, the ends of the earth. And actually, it's an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. The first several chapters are about Jerusalem. The next ones are about Judea. The following couple are about Samaria. And then the rest, mainly with the Apostle Paul, is about the mission to the end of the earth. As they work out from the epicenter of Jerusalem, where Jesus was resurrected, out into the furthest parts of the world. And of course, that push is still going on today. We're working locally. We're working regionally. We're working even internationally to see that the church is extended by the sharing of the faith. The disciples were wrong in almost every way. And I find it very encouraging that they were wrong because we often are too. We often find ourselves, just like them, looking up at the, into heaven, confused as to what we've just heard and seen, and confused about what exactly it is we need to do next. Getting confused that maybe we ought to be about political things or about mainly social things or mainly psychological things and forgetting the primary spiritual calling of the church to the nations gradually over time as the Lord works it out. Like he said, like yeast in a lump of dough. He works his kingdom first at a little bit and then works it out through the whole lump. The kingdom of God is working out through the world like yeast through the dough. The disciples stood there. They looked up into heaven. And two angels were sent. Maybe these were the same two angels that appeared at the empty tomb because they're dressed the same way. They were two men dressed in white who said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? What an unfitting thing for a church that's been called to go to the ends of the earth to be caught only looking into heaven. Now, this was not uh, they were looking into heaven thinking, oh, I can't wait to get there. No, th they weren't there. They were looking into heaven saying, what just happened? Uh, okay, Jesus, you're gone, but when's the kingdom coming again? T tell us when the Romans are done. That's what we're talking about. If we as Christians are too busy thinking about, all right, when's my political party going to win? When, when is my country going to get taken back you know, for this cause or that cause, whatever your cause happens to be? If all we're thinking about is stuff like that, or, or even just things like, uh, when am I going to get rich? Uh, when, when am I going to uh, get famous? You know, all the things that can become so distracting to human beings. What a sad thing that is when Jesus has given us a spiritual mission to the end of the earth. And I hope every person in the church, you don't have to be a pastor. This, this belongs to the whole church. Pastors have a role in this that is different, that is, that is, that is unique. But everybody has a role in the worldwide gospel-giving mission by the Holy Spirit. And I, I think every one of us should see it as our main ambition to help the gospel go out to the ends of the world, to more and more people. Gradually, but by the, the spiritual power of God, the Holy Spirit's power, which is an almighty kind of power, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that made you a Christian, is that same power that's behind the church's movement gradually to the ends of the earth. Didn't Jesus leave some pretty good instructions? And didn't he leave, along with those instructions, a wonderful promise? A wonderful promise. You will receive power. 
and I will be with you, and I'll never leave you, he tells the disciples. Now wait for it, and then go. Pray, and then speak, and I'll be with you, and the church will grow. Here we are 2,000 years later, and I am wrapping up. 2,000 years later, and no, the kingdom of Israel was not restored back to the days of David. But that was because that's not what God ever intended. He intended something more. What has happened in 2,000 years? Still spreading. But how far has it gone, Bob? Everywhere. Now, I know that just somebody saying they're a Christian doesn't make them one. But one out of every, I think it's three people in the world, professes to be a Christian today. I know that lots of people claim that. There's a work to do even among those billion or so who claim to be Christians, right? There's evangelistic work to be done. But it's still pretty amazing to think about 120 people led by 12 men who used to be fishermen now becoming a worldwide movement that has literally shaped the history of the world. Was that just an accident? Or was, it, or, was, or was what Jesus said actually real? I'd argue it's real, and we can be a part of it. That's what we want to talk about over these weeks in the book of Acts. Sound good?